On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no. She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner. Doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks. Run happy. Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Kevin Woodley. Kevin, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm dizzy. I'm, I'm dizzy from all the movement. This happens every year around uh, free agency period. A little surprised that this year a lot of it involved trades, but nonetheless, I am sort of starting to get my feet under me. If you ask me a question about who landed where, I can probably answer it, but I need, might need the Googles to help me get through it because it is... <laughs> Like, the movement is just crazy every year, so... It is. Let's get into it. Well, so we're recording this to set the scene. Friday morning here in Vancouver. Um, still, yeah, still reeling, as you said, a bit from Wednesday's festivities, but I feel like I've, I've gotten back on track a little bit here mentally in terms of, in terms of sorting out everything that happened. Uh, you are our, the PDO cast's uh, director of the goaltending excellence department, which is definitely a thing that we didn't just steal from... On the floor of Panthers. I love, I love how they named it that way. It's the first time I've ever had the word excellence applied next to my name, so I'll take it. Well, we've had you on a handful of times. People always love when you come on, and I thought this would be um, the perfect opportunity for us to check in. I think we did a show similar timing last year, kind of right at the start of free agency or right before maybe. Uh, as you mentioned, there was quite a game of musical chairs, and there's a lot of new situations for us to, to talk about and uh, and check in on. So. Here's a good kind of entry point for us in this conversation. In the spirit of the, the season we're in right now, you know, teams are going out and, uh, and they're changing the dynamics of their goalie rooms. And it's usually because they're unhappy with what they had the previous season. In certain occasions, like the Avalanche, I'm sure they were quite happy with what they got from Darcy Kemper. But for them, they've clearly identified, doesn't make sense for us to be devoting five plus million to one goalie considering all the other expenditures we have and the environment we have in place. So let's just kind of cheap out a little bit here purposefully because we feel like for three and a half or whatever for Georgia, we could probably get a reasonable facsimile. Well, and hey, we just won the Stanley Cup with goaltending that ranked out of the 30 guys that played in the playoffs. Um, you know, neither guy was in the top 20 by the time it ended and yeah. they won the Stanley Cup. So, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about Carolina feeling like a team that was trying to prove you didn't need elite goaltending to win a cup. I think Colorado just did. And that's not a slag on Kemper or Francois. Uh, I think Darcy was excellent, especially in the second half of last yeah, year. Yeah, he was. And, I, you know, I, having not had a chance to have a conversation with them, but just anybody that saw that Instagram post after they won the cup saw the swelling around the eye from that first-round injury, you got to think that had an effect. So at the end of the day, it's not a slag on, on Darcy to say that, but the reality is, and the numbers bore it out, you know, that they didn't need, they didn't get elite goaltending, and they're the Stanley Cup champions. So if you're them, why are you going to, you know, go and invest heavily when you can use that money to sort of keep more parts intact on the rest of the roster that achieve that 
Yeah, it's weird because, you know, the recency bias actually worked against Kemper, like based on the, the dialogue I saw where it was like, oh, this guy was a bum in the postseason. Like they won, they won in spite of him for a large stretch. And it's so rare that you say that about a team that just literally won the Stanley Cup. Usually it's like a goalie getting hot during the postseason. They go on a run, and then all of a sudden they enter the free agent market, and their value is above and beyond because of that recency bias. But I'm glad you pointed that out because I do think it was unfair to him. Like Just hearing that story about how he basically had to like retrain his eye to track the puck on the fly like that was, was pretty crazy to think about. And so certainly, you know, especially when you're going up against Vasilevsky, you're going to wind up looking like the inferior goalie. Um, but yeah, that second half of the regular season, like he was perfectly fine. So I don't want, I don't want to do a Darcy Kemper deep dive here, but I, you know, he's, he's better than he was in the playoffs. And I actually hadn't seen or heard that story about the tracking. And if I'm Washington, I want to make sure that that's not a long guy. I hope they did some due diligence on that done. before yeah. they signed that deal. Cause, but you're right. Like at the end of the day, let's just say it. We got the numbers to back it up. Darcy's sort of flirted with, top 15 top 10 guy in adjusted numbers for the last couple of years certainly amongst this free agency crop he would have been my pick of the litter here's the question that i wanted to pose there do you think that as a as a community we can talk we can talk about on a team level but we can also talk about us as analysts do you think we've put generally the proper amount of thought into the fit specific fit between goalie and team when these types of moves happen because it seems like the extent of analysis typically like for myself i go up on i go on evolving hockey or whatever a natural stat trick we have a pretty limited supply of stats you using clear sight analytics have uh, a wider breadth of information but typically it's limited to all right this team had x save percentage last year their goalies performed this way this goalie on his previous team did a certain right goal save above expected if we transpose what that goalie did onto this team next season, they'll be X wins better or whatever. Yeah, I mean, in simple terms, like I could take Matt Murray's adjusted save percentage from last year, ignore, ignore the, ignoring the injuries, which are obviously a question mark. Um, take a look at his adjusted save percentage. Take a look at Jack Campbell's adjusted save percentage and where his raw numbers were. And in very oversimplistic terms using that, I could say that Hey, listen, Leafs fans that are losing their minds over this, Matt Murray would have run a 919 or a 920 behind that defensive environment, just yeah. on the surface level. Right. What I'd like to think, and ClearSight does this actually, it does this for clients, you can basically plug goalie A into team X and dig down into all these different types of 34 different types of scoring chances and yeah. factors and sort of see where that fit is beyond just that sort of overall overarching you know, say percentage differential. Yeah. Yeah, You can dig into, you know, Hey, do they give up a ton on the rush? Is this guy good on the rush or is that a weakness? And all goalies, you know, Hey, all goalies have to face rush chances, but different guys, you know, and interestingly enough, like Matt and Pittsburgh, and we'll get into it. Like that were some of the issues where he was limited. Um, But you can dig into that Uh, screens, four different types of screens. Do we give up a lot of these? Are we a team that collapses and creates own screens, defensive screens? How does this guy fare? How has he fared throughout his career when it comes to those types of environments? You can, to a certain degree, sort of figure out roughly how this guy fits. And I know some teams have used it somewhat successfully in past years. I'm I'm not allowed to sort of give (laughs) the examples, but they have. Uh, But at the end of the day, even within that, like we talk about high danger chances and things like that. And obviously they measure that here. I think 
with the addition of the slot line plays and measuring sort of lateral passes and results off that, that's one of the elements that I think ClearSight does that others don't. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important. Uh, the numbers sort of bear out that, it, that it's important. Um, but even with all that information, like everybody gives up high danger chances yes. to varying degrees. Right. Some teams give them up more predictably mm. than others. Yep. You know, does the goal, can the, like it's one thing to give up that chance, but does the goalie know that the guy on the end of that pass is the option the whole way? Like is his defense on the same page as everybody's so tuned? So like even, even with all that information, it's not enough. Yeah. Because how goalies read the game and whether that environment and everyone's on the same page in terms of where that high danger is going to come from most often, like that matters. Yeah. And, you know, so, so, so we can do all the numbers we want. I don't know that we end up with a perfect result, but we can certainly add a lot more context than just looking at the sort of narrative-based stuff. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. A, a recent example that comes to mind for me was, uh, you know, this past postseason when I was really getting into all the round one matchups in terms of doing my previews and trying to figure everything out. I was, I, I got to say, I was blown away that the Wild decided to play Marc-Andre Fleury for the first five games of that series. Um, not that Cam Talbot is necessarily a perfect goalie by any means, but from a stylistic perspective, when I was like thinking about, okay, what are the Blues going to try to do here? They were like the number one team last season in terms of passing up the first shot, so their shot quantity was immensely low, to try to get those like you know backdoor uh, cross ice passes, and they were just they were basically going for high danger shots exclusively, and so for a goalie like Marc Andre Fleury, whose greatest strength is his aggression in terms of jumping out and cutting off the angle and kind of committing to that first shooter in a way and daring them to beat him, which fit perfectly with Vegas, right? Like that was perfect. And even when they gave up a ton of high danger stuff, Flower knew where they were coming from and he trusted that that back door was never going to be there because they'd give up that open look in the middle, Yep. but they weren't going to give up that lateral off of that open look. Well, and, and against this blues team in that round one matchup, it was like, they never take that first shot. So, in, throughout that series, he had a good game or two, but for the most part, like the recurring theme was it was just always someone on the back door basically wide open waiting for a tap-in, and if Jared Spurgeon or Jonas Brodeen don't break that up, it's a goal. And so, you know, by the time they played Talbot game six, it went off the rails, it was over. Yeah. But I, I thought that was a miscalculation on their part, and, and this is the stuff that I'm very curious about because at least on the outside, I, I'd love to know what that conversation was like, and if it went beyond, well, we traded for Marc-Andre Fleury, he's a big-game goalie, so we just got to play him. I wonder if that, like... The scouting report of what this team does offensively versus what we do defensively isn't nearly taken into account enough based on what I think it should be. Well, and I think part of the problem with that one, and this is where you'd love to be a fly on the wall in that room, right? And privy to those conversations, those decisions. Um, Part of the complications in that decisions were, and in that series, and I think there was a lot of this in the playoffs. I'm not sure that one team was necessarily better than the other on a whole, but they beat them because they didn't match up. Like there's yeah. a lot of like, and I think Certainly. St. Louis yeah. and Minnesota was that. Like St. Louis just sort of fed Minnesota its lunch all season, yeah. and that included Talbot. Yeah. Right. So you can look at it from a stylistic standpoint. Yeah. Does Flower tend to play a little around the edges? Maybe heels out side the edge of his crease, um, and is is one of his best skills sort of having that open look coming at him and not giving up depth. Yeah, but he's also still at 37, one of the ex- most explosive lateral goalies in the NHL. So can he maybe 
give up a little ice and make that adjustment tactically in that scenario. Cam plays a little deeper, so it's a shorter path for him on those east-west. But again, the history of the regular season said he hadn't had good success against them. So there were a lot of different factors there. I don't want to second-guess them too much. I did second-guess them quite a bit on how they handled Flurry down the stretch if the plan all along right. was to not run a tandem. Because one of the things we've talked about, uh, the risks of getting a goalie at the deadline is there's not enough time to adjust. And I don't think it's to the system per se, because systems, I mean, there's small variances here and there, but goalies, let's be honest, we're the smartest guys on the ice. We'll figure this stuff out <laughs> right. pretty quick, yeah. right? Don't ask me about defensemen. <laughs> you know, like, I can't tell you how many times I've been at, at camps with NHL goalies on the ice and, like, somebody make a mistake, and it's just like, oh, defensemen, man, they're brain dead. <laughs> Anyways, apologies to all the defensemen listening. Um, but honestly, I don't think it's it's systems. I think it's tendencies of teammates that takes the right. longest time to adjust. And you talk to guys who have been through it, and they're like, yeah, 15 to 20 games. Well, there's usually only 15 to 20 games left in the season. Yeah. And Flower had shown in previous stops, even having the start of the season, Chicago especially struggled early, right? I think there were some stylistic things before the coaching change too that didn't fit his game. Like once they made that coaching change, his numbers ramped up in right. Chicago. Yep. But anyways, there's going to be an adjustment period. So if you were planning to use him exclusively, then you should have played him more down the stretch. Unless there's something I didn't know in terms of fatigue or injury where he needed more rest. He needed more starts. If you were going to run a straight split tandem like they did for the most part after Philly arrived, like back and forth, back and forth. I think there's only one game where they didn't go back and forth. I was kind of hoping. Maybe maybe this is a selfish pet project of mine that I wanted to see come to fruition. I thought they might go back and forth in the playoffs, go back and forth between the two of them because they did it for the last month or so. But if you weren't going to do that, if you weren't going to throw Cam in there until it was last chance opportunity. Yeah. Why didn't you give Flower more time to make some of those adjustments? I wonder. I wonder if it was Flurry's decision, because it's tough to read too much into into the public comments. I'm sure part of it is is you know he by all accounts he's an amazing teammate, great guy. But like after he signed his extension this summer to stay more, two more years in Minnesota while they still had Cam Talbot, it was very interesting to me the way he was he kept during his like presser after or whatever he kept coming back to oh, we're basically going to play like 40 games each next season because I'm old and I want to stay fresh. And he kept, he kept bringing that up. And, and, and I know every goalie, all the greats, want to be in there as much as possible. Yeah. I'm sure Flory wants to play. But he's That's probably what, realistic about... I like the tandem. Like, yeah. like, I feel this is a loss for Minnesota having to trade Cam for yeah. whatever reason because I really liked the way that tandem was shaping up. And I remember... Because Alan Walsh, the agent, um, had, had... There was a point... I think last year in, in Vegas where he wasn't playing as much, where there was a tweet about how Neil Flowers always does at his best when he plays a lot, right? right? And, and he's right. Like, that's traditionally been, like, we get into rhythms as goalies. But I think every goalie wants to play every game, and there's a rhythm that comes with that. Well, and the next best thing to me is, and this is why I hate it when coaches go, in and you're in. When you got two goalies that are equal, man, just roll them out yeah. one after the other because every second game is still a rhythm. Right. If they're performing at similar levels, why are we so scared of that? And for all the comments about, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury playing his best when he plays a lot, the reality is his best results, I don't know if they're career, but certainly his best results ever in Vegas was the final two months there. And they literally, other than one game, went 
Flower, laner, flower, laner, flower, laner. They mm. alternated starts for two straight months, and both of them posted exceptional numbers. And then the playoffs started, and they ran Flurry out against Minnesota, ironically. And he was so good in the first four games to get them that 3-1 series lead that I felt they had, like, I, I understood it, why they didn't go back and forth. Yeah. Because, like, his numbers were, like, he had Jake Ottinger's playoffs the year before in the first four games of that series. Like, I'd never seen, like, the goals saved above expected in four games were, like, yeah. 10. It was bananas. And so I understand why they couldn't keep rolling him out there. But what happened? His play deteriorated as the series went on. They got through it in seven games as many came back in that series. Yeah. And then they had to start Robin Lehner, throw him to the Wolves against Chicago and or against Colorado in game one. Yeah. Because Flower was already running out of gas. And I wonder if you gave Pete the Bortruce serum, if he wouldn't have secretly admitted that he would have liked to have started that rotation a little sooner in the playoffs. Yeah. Well, it's... Okay. The po- I, I, tangents. I'm good no, at them. No, I apologize. That, We're that, all over the that place. Was, that was quite a tangent. I, I, I'm trying to remember what my initial point here was going to be. But <laughs> oh, okay. So this is what, this is, this is what I was going to make. So... Along the lines of thinking about specific fits in terms of like, especially if you're a team trying to bring in a new goalie and maximize their performance, you know, at some point we reach this shift in, in baseball where like the data revolution, where teams really started to embrace the idea that you can't just put together random starting pitchers mm-hmm. and they're going to perform the same in every ballpark. And especially with like the defensive data that came around in terms of like, you know, strengths and weaknesses, how you do defensive shifts, what you give up here or there. Like teams started giving much more thought to, all right, if we have a ballpark where we give up a lot of home runs because the ball just flies out, maybe we should get a ground ball pitcher or someone who strikes out a lot and, and kind of vice versa, right? And you don't have that ballpark element necessarily in hockey, but I do think that team, uh, that team element of, all right, we have a team that gives up certain types of chances or we, or we do certain things. Um, I lo- I'd like to give more thought to how goalies' respective strengths and weaknesses fit into that overarching theme. So we have seen some of that. And like I said, I can't give some of the examples of the, right. of the teams that have used this data to, to actually have success. But, but one of them used it, had success with it early, but the team wasn't having the same levels. It wasn't the goalie's fault, but the team was struggling a little bit. They changed the coach. And so everything right. changed. Yeah. So you made this investment right, based right, right. on the data, and then the environment changed. Yeah. So everything you invested in the goalie and changed around him. Yeah. And I guess I would go to the point, I would hope that we would get there. Because what you're saying makes perfect sense, and it's something I've argued for for years, especially once I was able to get access to this more sort of like, I guess microstats would be the word, like, like see some of the very specifics that you can filter through here. Yep. I think that's absolutely worth investigating and should be a part of any decision, especially maybe not like you can't guarantee extreme success on either end. Like this guy's hundred percent, the best fit ever. He's going to be better than he's ever been in his career just because he's in this system. And, and, and the other end being that you want to avoid is man, like there's no fit here at all. Like, why <laughs> are we getting a goalie who struggles on rush chances when we're going to trade rush chances all yeah. day? Like those are the, I think you can avoid you know, like somewhere in the middle there, you can find some fits. But again, the environment changes, personnel changes. God, I mean, 
one of the reasons I think we saw numbers crater as the season went on this year is because not just did we have 119 goalies play, many of whom weren't ready for the NHL because yeah. of COVID and restrictions, but we had defensemen in front of them that just you know, talked about flurry. It's not the system. It's learning to read off the guys in front of you. We had guys in front of goalies that weren't ready to be there. And so chaos reigned and save percentage cratered. Yep. And everyone's like, offense is back. And yeah, I'll be honest, actually in the playoffs, I started to maybe buy into it a little bit. I know we had this conversation yep. late in the season. I think it was due to the circumstances around the season, but some of those teams did continue to have success in the playoffs. So I've grain assaulted. Maybe I'm wrong yep. and maybe we will see an offensive explosion. But at the end of the day, if you're not at least looking for some of this information, you're not doing it right. But having said all that, Dimitri, I can tell you, like I can probably count on one hand the number of teams in the NHL that will base how they play on the strength and weakness of the goaltender they have. Mm -hmm. It's almost always the other way around. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. And until that changes, why does it matter whether they look at the stats? Because their answer is, this is how we play. Right. The goalie's got to adjust to it, as opposed to, the goalie's really good at this. Let's play in a way that allows him to have success. I think one of the examples I can give is Paul Maurice when he was with Winnipeg. Yeah. And as good as Connor Hellebuck is, and they did give up high danger, it was always in straight lines. Not always, but more often than not, it was in straight lines. And Connor's talked about this a little bit as well, um, even especially on the PK. Like, it would look like really dangerous chances, but they were always coming in straight lines. They weren't giving up laterals. And if you attack Connor in straight lines with how good he is at holding his edges and not retreating and not giving up that ice yep. and how big he is, he understands, despite the fact that the numbers say the closer you get to the net, the higher danger the chance is, Connor understands that in straight lines, if he doesn't blink, the closer that guy gets to him, yep. the smaller that net is behind him relative to puck position. Like he is closing. The closer you get, the less he has to move to make that save because that relationship between puck, the four corners of the net, what we call box control, he is feeling as long as he doesn't retreat, as long as he doesn't start backing up and start opening holes in the process, that, that box by which the puck can go through him gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And so... That's a good example of a team that I think everybody looked at. Oh, they give up all these, like they were classified as high danger chances. Yeah. But because they didn't have a lateral element, played perfectly into the strengths of their goaltender. But I don't think we're at a point where that happens nearly enough in the NHL. And if we're not looking at it on ice in terms of how we coach and how we set up systems, I think there's less likelihood that people are going to look at it in terms of how those systems might fit a goaltender in free agency or in trade. Well. Take but it the, makes sense to all of this should a hundred percent be included in your factors and how you play and how you acquire goalies. I yeah. just don't think we're there. Well, a couple of points on that, the, along the, the jets argument you're making there, you know, we talked about this, I think last time about the hurricanes, but like it almost is irrelevant where the shot location is because if you watch the way they defend the amount of time that the shooter has, to make an accurate shot selection in terms of what they want to do with it is so abbreviated compared to right. a worse defensive team that it's showing up as a high danger chance because in theory, historically, we've shown that a shot from that location will go in a certain percentage of the time, but not if Jacob Slavin's stick is in the way and you have a, a millisecond a forward to do on your something. hip. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, time, time and space, right? We always yeah. talk about time and space. All-star games. 
yeah. practices. Like watch the best goalies in the world just get torn apart by shooters as with soon as time they have and, time, time yeah. and space. And yep. they, so you're right. That's again another factor that even in the numbers I have isn't that's not included. That's not part. Yeah, of it. it's not enough. Well, that's and that's been the hidden brilliance as well of the Lightning for as great as Nikita Kucherov is with the puck, all the offensive weapons they have. Like we saw, even when they were running on fumes this season and during this past uh, run to the Cup final. It's not necessarily the volume of shots they blocked, but it's like kind of the manner they did it in a way where, like I was talking to a player on one of the teams they played, and, and he was like, it was beyond infuriating to think that you have an open shot, and then all of a sudden either Hedman or Chernak or McDonough just appear out of nowhere with their stick and kind of just like harmlessly knock it away. And that, especially over a seven-game series, that that that... that like emotional wear and tear almost accumulates as much as the physical wear and tear because you start like you start hearing footsteps in a way, right? Where all of a yeah. sudden everything is contested and maybe you start rushing stuff even if the guy isn't there. And so it's just it's such a different environment than And then add to that the guy behind that defensive right. player is Andre Vasilevsky. Right. And I've had this conversation with other goaltenders around the league. A couple of guys have, have had this conversation with me about how demoralizing he can be on shooters. Mm. Like, literally, guys will be a backup on the bench playing Tampa Bay, and the shooters will come back to the bench on good looks off open rushes. And they're like, quite literally, they're like, there's nothing there. Yeah, Like, I just didn't see anything. There's nothing there. And he's just so freaking big and freaking athletic. So you don't see anything there, so you pass it across. And that guy looks up, and Andre is already there. Yeah. And he's probably on his skates already and squaring up and looks giant again. So, yeah, you add all those things together. Um, and there's a reason they've got two cups and we're in the final again this year. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to give We've you, digressed. We had no. I think it's. I think it's an important point. I think everyone understands that not every shot is created equal and all that. But I think the extent to which. Hey, can I just say that? Thank God we've gotten to this point. Yeah. Because there wasn't. It wasn't. Doesn't feel like it was that long ago, where people kept telling me that it didn't make a difference. Yeah. This the other stuff that it that we could that it location was enough so i'm glad that we've well, kind of come I, to the I, I still think in the regular season i still think shot volume is probably the most important because over 82 games you're gonna run into enough scenarios where you either play a poor team or you play a good team that's on the second of a back-to-back and you can just overwhelm them with like a 40 shot game Volume and locate, like yeah, those all make like yeah, hundred percent. But in a playoff series, it's a totally different calculus. In my well, but I, I think even like I think that a lot of the numbers that are generated in terms of expected are based on massive, massive samples. Yes, right. Yeah, and a lot, and I and I will agree that in those samples, the argument was the noise of things like a cross seam pass, it gets erased right over a massive sample. But even within a season, the amount of cross seam passes, it like. The variance from one team to the other, like I don't think there's enough noise even within a full season to erase that effectively. And yeah. when we get down into the smaller sample of the playoffs, even more so. Yeah, I, I think those factors matter more and more, and that's where you need to be able to have a look, and you can see the differences because that puck on the edge of the crease that is naturally high danger, if one team you know, is giving up 25 of them off cross ice passes and the other team is giving 25 of them with the goal goalie already there set square because there was no cross ice element like 
If I'm in my butterfly on my knees there and that puck is at the edge of the crease and it can't go east-west, yep. I just have to sit there. Like, you can't, you can't score. There's no room. There's no relationship between – like, it doesn't go in. Yeah. You have to either open me up or move it laterally, and that's where I think in smaller samples that information becomes more and more important. And I think – honestly, I think it's within even within – and I could be wrong, and there's much smarter people than me that will tell me if I am – but I think even within the course of a season, the difference from one team to the other in terms of whether those chances include those other elements or not um, is important to know. Well, Kevin, I, this is going to seem strange to say because the game is undoubtedly faster than it's ever been in terms of the pace it's played at, how well everyone can skate. But I would actually argue that the game is almost slowing down in a weird way because, one – the players are so gifted that they're able to process the game at speeds that we as people watching from either the press box or at home can't even comprehend. And two, there is so much interesting data available now that we're able to optimize certain elements of the game or kind of break it down into, into categories, right? And so like, I know an NHL coach that, um, that doesn't believe that you can sort of um, strategically attack certain defensemen on on carrying the puck into the zone because the game happens so fast that it's not as simple as, all right, this guy struggles, so let's try to kind of funnel the puck over there. Like, it, it, like over the course of a game, the puck, whoever has it, if it's on the right wing, you're going to try to carry it in and vice versa, right? And then the data shows that the guys, the defensemen who are really, really good at defending the blue line don't get challenged nearly as often as their inferior partner. And that would lead me to believe that whether it is a conscious decision that, that coaches are telling their players and the pre-scout, all right, we need to attack this guy, or if the players are smart enough to figure it out as the game goes along, oh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna challenge Colton Pareko because his reach is ridiculous. I'm gonna attack Callie Rosen or whoever he's or Nick Letty or whoever he's playing right. with, right? It's a, it's an easier entryway into the zone. And so that happens in the offensive zone as well and the defensive zone um, for the defenders. But it's remarkable to me how, like, I, I think I have no time anymore for the argument that the game is so fast that you can't analyze it like we can in baseball or basketball because it's so random and chaotic. Like, sure, there's certain stretches where the puck's just randomly bouncing around and no one's controlling it. But I really do believe, especially the higher-end players, are like, you're able to come into a game with a game plan of, okay, we want to get the puck into these areas of the offensive zone. We want to do this. We want to try to score from here. And now the defenders might be like, all right, we know they're going to try to do that. So it's a cat and mouse game. Yeah, it's always back but and forth. But it's not – I think we've moved past the days of, all right, we're going to get the puck in the zone, pass it up to a point, wildly shoot it into a shin pads, hope it gets deflected in. Like, that's not a strategy. And the Hurricanes do it to a degree, but they're so, like, tenacious at recovering the rebounds that it kind of evens out, especially throughout the regular season. Um, but for the most part, like there's so much thought, I think, being put into this that goes beyond just I, the randomness of yeah, it's too it, fast. That includes breaking down goaltenders, yeah. right? Like like finding weaknesses perceived relative, however you want to call those weaknesses. Like they're terrible, but relative to their strengths. Like, why would we attack their strengths? Let's attack their weaknesses. And I think what happens a lot of the times from a goaltending perspective is it doesn't really come to fruition until the playoffs. I do think, you know, I've had this conversation with players in the room over the past decade. You know, how much do you want to know? How much information do you want about that goaltender? Um, and in the regular season, there are always going to be guys that, yeah, they want all that information because they are, you're right, 
they are thinking the game at that level. And in that split second, they're looking for a tendency or looking for, there are also things we can find where when the, if you get the puck off our cycle in this spot, you can, you can look for this from a sharp angle because this guy's late into this safe selection or he holds his feet. So if you're going to take this shot, shoot it in his feet or pick that spot over his, in, over his ear because you're good enough to do it, nobody's expecting the shot from here and he's probably in an RVH and he doesn't seal very well because he doesn't do it properly. Yep. Um, those things, some players pay attention to that all season long. But when it's Columbus on a Tuesday night yeah. and it's one of 82 and guys can't even tell you what day of the week it is, let alone what city they're in until the puck drops, I think that information for most of them, and again, there are some that just don't even want it. Yep. They just want to go on instinct um, outside of maybe a shootout. I think, I think it gets ignored a lot of the time in the regular season. But now when we're in the playoffs and it's the same guy seven straight games yep. theoretically. You know their tendencies, yeah. Yeah, you're going to pay attention to it. And yeah, maybe the game happens super fast and it's really hard to exploit or get the shots you want, but we have this thing called power plays where, right. you know, like the other team has one less guy. And so you can make decisions like, hey, not that you fundamentally change your and go to the point you go away from strengths on a power play, but if I'm running things, you know, through the umbrella and the guy at the top has a choice whether he passes to a one-timer on the right flank or the left flank, and my pre-scout says this goalie is, all guys have a strength and a weakness in terms of what side they move better to. Yeah. And I've got a good shooter on either option. And I know this goalie's a little slower to his blocker than he is to his glove, or he doesn't, he doesn't get rotation to one side. The tendency of goalies is to, because the stick sort of gets in the way, some goalies don't get good rotation on their blocker side, so they might come across a little flat. Yeah, I might hedge toward the shooter on that side. And if I'm the shooter, and I know that goalie comes across flat rather than getting good rotation... Uh, I am going to probably go short side post yeah. uh, versus a goalie who might be a little quicker I might and, and, and comes across uh, with a little better rotation. I might try and go against the grain on him. Like all this information is there. I find it hard to believe, especially in the playoffs, that more and more of them don't start to pay. And they do because I know because I've had these conversations yeah. with the goalie coaches doing the scouting report. And in some cases, you know, again, I got to be careful – too much information here, but like I know, no one listens to the show. Goals, it's, just, it's just me and you. Goals, goals that have been scored in the playoffs that the players come back and they're like hundred percent that was pre scout based. Yeah, and sometimes there's quirky little things. Um, I, I've actually seen within a playoffs a goalie have to adjust how he worked in in and out of his posts because a team scored two. And in crucial moments from behind the goal net, banked them off, and he had to change that tendency right away in the course of the series because they were exploiting it. Like, it happens. Well, but it, you never hear about it in the regular series. You, know, you don't – maybe we just don't notice, or maybe it doesn't happen as often, but in the regular season, I think it's just far less. Well, let me give you an example. So our pal Daryl Belfry had uh, – he was telling me a story about how he had a conference. Did you ask him if he was a goalie? Because I've heard he was a goalie in June. I didn't ask him, but even if he was, I feel like he probably wouldn't admit it. He should because we're the smartest guys. This is where this all comes from. I'm just – I'm totally obviously not – I shouldn't say we. They're the smartest guys. I don't fit that – I'm only a goalie in – well, it's whatever, beer league trade. <laughs> I'm, I'm not actually as smart as the guys that played at the high level. Well, okay, let me give you, let me give you an example of, um, of what I'm talking about here. So he was telling me – that he had a workshop where he had all of these elite NHLers 
become skaters. Yep. Um, and as part of their kind of meet and greet, he is he gets them all together in a room, and he's already queued up uh, specific clips from the previous season of either goals they had or moves they made, kind of like interesting scenarios. And so he he cues this one up with with a with a star player in the league to get up and talk to his peers about what he saw in the play. And it was a scenario where the player gets the puck on the wall and goes behind the net and does like the, I guess it's the Kuznetsov move where he's going behind the net and then he kind of like goes back like against the grain and yep. passes it back to the, the spot he basically just left. Yep. So, and, and we know that, you know, the goalie all of a sudden is trying to track it. They're looking over their shoulder trying to see where the guy's going and all they of a sudden do, they move off the net, right? Yeah, see that if they do it properly, they should be using their windows in a way where they they look before they leave that short side. Yes. So they should be finding that puck over the shoulder but not abandoning that side because you can always make the push across faster than you can. Yeah. So you move your head before you move your body. But yes, all right, can, let me finish the story. Okay. Oh, enough about the goalie aspect of this. I'm, I'm more interested about the forward component of it. So he's expecting the, for, the, the, the player to say, well, yeah, like, you know, you see the goalie looking over the wrong shoulder, you pass it back to where they aren't looking, and your shooter has a better chance of scoring, right? It's like the whole concept of why we want to initiate offense from behind the net. The player is like, oh, no, like, that had nothing to do with it. I had actually mapped this out, like, 10 seconds before the puck even came to me because he noticed that his left winger was being uh, covered by a right-shot defenseman. And they were both along the left left post. And so he felt that his winger would be able to box out the defender and leverage his handedness for an easier tap-in because the defender wouldn't be able to get across and tie him up. And so he... Oh, and, like mushroom clouds going off so, in my head so right now. basically he got the puck on the wall. Yeah. And then he was like dragging out the play to allow his teammate and the defender covering him to get to where they needed to be, which was preordained, to I, set this up. I wonder how many guys are thinking at that level. Now... I'm sure also there were countless times throughout the season where this player thought that and then the puck bounced or someone or there was a miscommunication or his his, his teammate didn't go to where he thought he was going to go and nothing comes of it, right? And so it's a lost play, whatever, you move on. Um, but and, and this is an elite player. I do think, though, that I would hope that this level of detail and thought is being put in beyond put your head down and skate as fast as you can and uh, or shoot from wherever. And so that, that's the stuff that really gets me going in terms of excitement of like breaking the game down to that minute of a level. So, and what it reminds me of, and it's a fascinating story because I, I am curious how many guys think at that level. Maybe I need Probably to start. Probably not that many, but. But I need to start asking players the same questions we get to ask goalies at ingoalmag.com. Like we have something called pro reads where we have NHL goalies do film sessions with mm. me. And we always have to be careful not to give away state secrets. Like I drop in here when the puck gets there. But they basically share their reads with us, how they read a play and what keys and cues they're looking for. And it sounds a lot like what you just described, like mm. things like handedness, uh, how they're holding the stick, where they're positioned, um, all play a huge role. And it's been the idea behind the project was to allow young goalies, because we always hear this with, with goalies, like they become quote unquote goalie school goalies. You know, they're in these, you know, controlled environments so often at young ages where the drill goes from here to here to here and they're trying to perfect their movement, but they always know where the shot's coming from. Right. Like it's not dynamic enough. 
or they become so pre-programmed within these drills that they don't really learn how to read the game. So the concept was show these kids through these video sessions with NHL guys just how much information they're processing on the fly. Mm -hmm. I thought I had an idea what that would look like. But much like your story, the first time we did it was with Carey Price. He was our guinea pig. We had spent a day with him up in Kelowna and said, hey, you want to try this? Like, we think this might be a cool idea for Ingle. Yeah. Oh, it was mushroom clouds then too. By yeah. the amount of detail, Dimitri, that yeah. he was processing on the fly and that he could recall watching the video was, it blew my mind. And so it, it really feels a lot like that story. And so that's how, I mean, again, Carey's a, you know, we've had other guys that don't provide us whether it's because they don't want to or because they're not processing it at that level, I always wonder. But some of them are a lot more, a lot simpler in their reads. <laughs> See puck, stop puck. <laughs> but, but handedness yeah. is just like one of so many factors. And to go back to our conversation about defensive environments and the predictability is a word I come, come back to a lot. when it, like It's not just about the high danger chances, but it's do you know where they're coming? Is it predictable where they're coming yep. from? The other part that has been a real learning curve for me uh, doing these these film sessions, these pro-read sessions, and we've got, I think, like 16 or 17 guys that have sat down for them. Um, and I want to say there's like there's like 100, we're almost three years in, one a week, probably like 120 of these available online for okay. subscribers, shameless plug. Yep. Um, the one that I keep coming back to that's really blowing me away is how often those reads are not just based on what the shooters are doing and the handedness of the shooter and is he are there cues you can find pass or shot uh, are his passing options one time options or do they have to go cross body all these different factors and the, and there's a ton but quite often at the top of the list is my defenseman is taking this away. Hmm. I know our system says this forward is going to come back in, and, and attack this angle. Right. So again, the predictability and the ability to trust your defenseman to execute, whether it's within the system or knowing their personal tendencies, the amount of times that has contributed to one of these quote-unquote pro reads and allowed a guy to make a save, not more so, but certainly as much as what the attacking players are starting to do. And it all just like it, like just hearing that story from you, like it all yeah. just sort of, it, it's in a way it's sort of reassuring, but it also tells me why they're scoring more than they have before to know that, you know, there are players out there thinking the game at that same level. I shouldn't be surprised by it. And yet, sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole no, here, but cool like think that story was awesome. And yeah. I now regret not having listened to the Belfry episode. I, I, I meant to. Okay. Well, Yes, everyone. I mean, I everyone think, should go back. I think and Bel listen well, to, Belfry to is actually doing. He's put out three of his. He's starting his own podcast, and he's uh, he's doing breakdowns of like tape study of individual forwards, and uh, he's done some really cool stuff so far. So another shameless plug. Uh, well, I, I'm going to be honest with you. That's this is the one of the things that uh, he's ahead of the curve then because one of the things at Ingle was we've had some success here and got some traction with this type of work, and we also do a lot of the drills like like goalie coaches will share their goals and objectives and walk us through video of drills at the NHL level. And plus we spend time with them in the summer. And I've always said first guy to pull off this type of thing with forwards yeah. and high level skill coaches. Cause at the end of the day, our audience at Ingle is two guys on every team and their audience is 20. Yeah. So uh, I think on a scalability, um, Daryl's onto something big there. Wow. Shouldn't be surprised cause he's a genius. I've been, I've been bugging the Vegas golden Knights for like three years now. To let me talk to Mark Stone 
to do a video breakdown, just sit with them and just watch defensive plays and be like, what did you see on this one? Now, I understand why uh, an active player has nothing really to gain from from giving away their uh, state secrets. So that's one of the it's one of the first caveats every time we do pro reads like, hey, if we get into something here that you think is an exploitable tendency or and, and, you know, a lot of guys are like, hey, man, like like we see it. We see goalies like goalie coaches will map out the zone, like defensive zone, like when like they're and they'll have like numbers one through five or whatever. And when it's in this spot, you're in this position. Yeah. And I've had a, cu- a bunch of NHL goalies be like, man, the game's way too dynamic. You can't be that structured. But there are a few that are. Like yeah. the puck hits this point and I'm dropping into my post. Right. And that's a tendency that you don't want to discuss publicly. And so the first thing we do with pro reads is, hey, if I show you a video and we're discussing it and you think there's something in here you don't want to share, delete. Like I'm not going to share it. Like yeah. the last thing I want to do is burn you. And I've had a couple of guys, I won't say names, but I've had a couple of guys um, say to me, Hey, like, I'm, I'm just not comfortable doing it. I, I, you know, I don't want to give away any information, yeah. so, but some are. And so, uh, the goalies have, well, uh, we need, we need more really of that. Good. We need more of that. I, I agree. Think, generally. Um, okay. We are 45 minutes in and we have not hit any of the topics that were on my list. So, oh, no, uh, Kevin, that, that was all his usual rambling. That self. was all freelancing right there. All right. We're going to do some quick hitters here. I want to get through as much of this as we can. This is why I end up doing, doing two parters by accident. <laughs> I think my thing with Merrick this year, when <laughs> Elliot was off for a week was supposed to be one session and ended up two or three parts i talked too much i'm sorry well uh, i mean jeff as well that's a that's a that's a good one the two of us in a room is trouble yeah all right champions aren't born they're made and the secret to make your business reign supreme shopify the all-in-one commerce platform to start run and grow your business Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. 
Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Devils. So speaking with people around the league last year, I did a big Jack Hughes feature for Epeering Side, and I was like, you know, I was going through all the tape. I was very curious in the projection or the progression of his game from year two to year three and the steps he took, right? And just speaking with people on different teams and stuff, everyone agreed that as a community, we weren't talking enough about how fun the Devils were last year, how much offensive talent they had, and how much of a handful they could wind up being for other teams to deal with if they could ever get a save. And the degree to which they cratered in that last season um, was pretty wild to consider. I don't know what – I'm curious what, what you got, and you can pull it up. I'll give you the stats I've got. They used seven different goalies. Those seven goalies combined to give up 61 more goals than expected, according to Evolving Hockey. Those seven goalies stopped 88.1% of the shots they faced, which was only better than the Seattle Kraken. Um, and it's been a cursed position for them, right? We can talk about Blackwood here and sort of what what happened, what went wrong, what the future outlook should be like. But, you know, they were clearly looking for a reliable backup to help cover for him. And in consecutive off-seasons, they signed Corey Crawford and Jonathan Bernier, and they got 10 combined games out of them. Now they traded a draft pick at the, at the draft to bring in Vitek Vanacek, who I assume they're going to try to get something out of his numbers in his first two seasons have been quite pedestrian. Um, but it also, it's going to come down to like what they can get out of Blackwood, obviously, right? He's in kind of a, a crossroads season where I believe it's the last year of the bridge contract he signed. Uh, his salary actually escalates a little bit, so he's pretty pricey this season. He's 26 or whatever, he's turning 26 this season. And, uh, and, you know, his numbers have not been good the past year and a half or so, clearly. Um, but I'm really curious about the Devils because they're a team that I love watching. I have high hopes for because of the personnel they have, especially in terms of upfront skaters. Um, but for them to go from being like a frisky young team to a team that actually gives people problems, they need to stop being 31st in team save, team save percentage. So. How do you break that down in terms of what they actually got? Because they were obviously using goalies who probably shouldn't have been playing in the NHL last season as well. So that that that's they were things. one of my like, exhibit A's, like um, Nico Dawes. Yeah, well, they used, uh, seven, they used seven goalies in an yeah. eighty-two game season. Like, that's and there were crazy. periods there, like I, like I think as much as on the overall, um, you know, I, 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 where Nico's numbers ended up, there were certainly stretches there where they should be encouraged. Um, by his future, because he, he shouldn't have been in the National Hockey League, like just based on just, I mean, it was his first year pro. He played yeah. 10 games the year before in Germany, right? Like there were some periods there were, there's some real upside there, I think in Nico especially, but you're right. Like they didn't have a single goaltender above expected last yep. year. Um, so no question. When I look at the defensive environment, um, it's bottom third of the NHL. Yeah. Well, that's, a uh, rough, that's a Lindy rough team for you. hundred percent. And especially um, high danger 21st in terms of what they give up. Now you look at Vancouver at 25th, but you have Thatcher Demko, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and I think the, one of the things that I've come around to this year is like, there's, there's that list of guys at that elite, elite level. Yeah. And, and I've got Demko in that category. If he can stay healthy and play yeah. a lot, like I, I, I think he you. joins yeah. that group of actually predominantly Russian goaltenders. Yeah. Um, like he's in that list. Uh, 
And so they were able to get away with being the 25th ranked team when it came to high danger chances that they gave up. Jersey's 21st, and the guys underperformed it. Part of that is just the that you know, I think Jonathan Bernier is a guy that would have at least steadied the ship a little bit. Um, yeah, because he was like league average during those years where Detroit was. He was horrific. good in Detroit. He yeah. was, uh, I he got was. him above in Detroit yep. for sure. Like I like that signing. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing to me that surprised me a little bit is they're expected off the rush. I thought they'd be terrible off the rush. They'd be one of the worst defensive no, teams. No, it was more like in zone breakdowns. Yeah, and and they were. They were like top five in uh, off the rush, but on on end zone, you're right. Um, you know, it, it drops significantly. So it's it it's tough. Like at the end of the day. And this is where there's no absolutes, right? Like, the defensive environment was not good. No. I don't think when we get down to, you know, some of those details you talked about, Carolina time and space. Yeah. Like, I think they give up a lot of it. Yes. But they also had goaltenders that weren't ready for the environment, and nobody sort of rose up. Nobody rose above the environment. Yeah. And I think when you're in a tough defensive environment, it can usually go the other way. I sort of used to point to Edmonton for all those years. Yes, like yeah, yeah, I remember. If that backdoor pass gets through past the defenseman who's supposed to have it nine straight times, yeah. chances are on the 10th you're going to start to lean, you're going to start to cheat. And the one absolute truth in this league, and you just you talked about how skilled these guys are, yeah. what they're looking for. Man, as soon as you start leaning, as soon as you start yeah, cheating, you're dead. And so maybe that's a little bit cumulative. Um, they're not the worst defensive team in the league, but their bottom third and their goaltending hasn't been good enough to bail them out. Do I think Mackenzie Blackwood, man, physically, he has the tools to be the guy that could bail them out. Right. But for whatever reason, and obviously we've got you know things like COVID and vaccination, and I don't know how much that play yeah. into. Well, it. Well, he missed three three months with like a heel injury or something. I yeah. Think. So and health, like he, I mean, he has the physical tools to be that guy, but for whatever reason, it hasn't come together for him yet, and it doesn't sound like it's going to happen there because, well, I mean, his name's been on the trade market all year. Same with Samsonov, right? And Samsonov finally moved, you know, just based on Washington letting him go. But those were two guys that were of it. You could have had them any point this year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Capitals are, are begging me to make Samson up my co-host here just so he wouldn't play play a net for them anymore. I mean, so I, uh, I, I, I get that. Okay, Gibson, for the 20th straight PDO cast that you and I do, uh, we're going to talk about John Gibson. He's an enigma, and I, and I have trouble sort of solving it. So Okay, so let me, give you, let me give you some stuff. All right. So last three seasons, 904 save percentage, 903 save percentage, 904 save percentage. Goal save above expected in those three years, minus 10, minus 4, minus 4.5. I got him at minus 12 this last season. I have no statistical argument for the, for what I'm about to say. It's more of a gut feel. And I understand the irony of that because I make fun of hockey people who say that stuff all the time. <laughs> but I just, I, for some reason, I can't reconcile the fact that this guy just turned 29 yesterday. So he's not old. He's been around for a while, but there's no reason to believe that a 29-year-old goalie should fall off to the degree that he has in terms of what his statistical output would indicate. I've seen him. I've watched individual games this past season. There was a game in Florida where I think it was like the best individual performance I saw from any goalie all year. He had a game in Toronto earlier where he just stands on his head. He makes preposterous 
degree of difficulty saves and the easy ones too, but he's just like stops 49 of 51, is the best player on the ice. And I see a level of athleticism in his game that doesn't suggest that this is a guy who's w- washed up and past his prime and is should be considered differently than he was during his peak seasons. But he's, then at the end of clearly, the year... He's clearly gifted. Like, clearly. Yeah. So that's why... You I see the skills. I can't look at what he's done and be like, this is a barometer of how good he really is. But it's been three straight years now of the number is not lining up with how good he looks if you watch him on the on a perfect night. And I guess, like, that's what... Like, consistency matters in this position, right? And so what I can't... Like, this is going to be one of those examples where... I agree. He's better than the numbers, even the adjusted numbers. And yep. my, mine were actually less flattering than yours. Um, you know, I had him at like minus 12 goals saved this year. Yeah. But there were certainly some moments where he looked like he could be the best goaltender in the world. I watched him. There were a couple of week stretches where that was the case. Yep. Um, I do wonder how much of this environment, like it goes back to the Edmonton argument, because I think he was better in the first half this year when they were competitive. Well, first 33 games. I've got him at 922 save percentage plus 16 goal save above expected from February on 23 games, 876. Save they percentage. started like they started peeling off yeah. parts and of they, that yeah, team, of course, right? Of course. Like, yeah. And part of that wasn't, it's not just defensive. Like the one thing, and this is again, where all these factors and I don't have the answer. Like, I'd love to tell you, I got this great answer on John Gibson, but I can tell you um, that their inability to score, not this year, but in all the years, like the past couple of years, that weighs on you right? mentally. I've had this conversation, not with John, but with Ryan Miller and with other people in that organization. Like when you go into every game and you're in a losing team and your mindset is, man, if I let in one tonight, it might be one too many. Yeah. That is just an unreal amount of pressure. Like that wears on you over time. And I think it wore on the goaltenders there. Now, so this season, they start to score in the first half. Yep. And that takes some of that pressure off. Um, and he has a, and he was really good, I thought, in the first half overall. But I still think, and there, that athleticism, that skill that is so evident that you talk about, um, at times there can be an over-reliance on it. Like, I think he's tightened elements of his game technically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know there's a, a, a wariness there. Uh, talking to the goalie coach, uh, Sudarshan Maharaj, who's, who's one of the really great goalie coaches in the league, there's a sort of, they're a little wary about making too many changes. Like, do you lose the things that give you those moments of brilliance and the perfection you talked about seeing in certain games if you add too much structure? And yet, I think technical structure provides consistency. So in... The search for the ceiling, which we all agree is amazing, I think you might sacrifice a lower floor. Right. You might be creating a lower floor. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong on that. I'm really not sure. He is a bit of an enigma. There are elements in his game, uh, in his the way he moves. There's a lot of opening and closing. Uh, I think it puts a lot of stress, or at least early in his career, put a lot of stress on his body. And all these things have sort of improved a little bit here and there. Yeah. But there's that... But they don't want to make him a technician. They don't want to make him a robot. And I agree with it, right? Because all those things that we see when he's at his best are like, oh, man, yeah. like athleticism. And, but anytime you rely too much on athleticism, you're going to be more prone to highs and lows. And what I can't rectify, what I can't answer, is how much of those highs and lows come with the team around him and the yeah. frustrations that he must be experiencing mentally 
and how much of it is based on that sort of, I don't want to say looseness in his game, but maybe relative to, to some other guys, there's some looseness in his game. So at the end of the day, what I'd come down to is when I look at that contract in that age at a time when everybody's talking about acquiring them, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot of risk there. Um, and it's risk I would be wary of despite loving what I like. He's fun to watch. Oh, when he's on his game, like the amount of, we've talked about was the amount of yeah. swag he has, like, like, yeah, the flair, like how, like, he, he, and they don't want to, and again, that's what they don't want to take away. Yeah. And I fully understand that, but I, and I don't know where you get the best John Gibson, but like, I trust the people that are involved in shaping his game. Cause they're, they're some of the best. And so I do think some of it is what's going on around him. I just, what I can't do, what we can never do is sort of find a way to weigh and measure that, right? That's the challenge. Yeah, like I, I almost wish like you'd watch him. Like I don't have a, a, like a trained technical eye like yours, but like I can see when a guy is like physically limited or, or if he looks like he did four or five years ago and like Gibson physically looks the same. Like it's, it's, it'd be so much easier to just write him off if you watch and you're like, all right, he doesn't get post to post as well. He's, you know, this and that, like, I'm, I, I don't trust it. Um, there's none of that. Like, uh, you watch him on the, on the right night, and it's like, physically, he looks the same. Now, it hasn't translated the way you like. I do, I'm, I'm willing to buy the argument that it is, uh, to what you said, the, the, the sort of stress level of needing to be perfect, I think also a matter of motivation. Like, in that environment. That's a tough in, environment In that, right in that environment, especially yeah. for someone who's so competitive. It's, I don't think it's an accident that he started each of those three years that we just talked about with the four numbers really well. Yep. And then as the year drags along, it plummets. Now, how much of that is he can't keep up, keep up that level of play? And how much of it is that motivation? That again, would be the but again, $6.4 million question. Right. Reli- <laughs> a reliance on athleticism, or not over-reliance on athleticism, but when you, when you play at your best when you're playing that athletic, like I would argue that he's probably a guy where you need to monitor games played a little bit, right? right? Like maybe more so than other guys. Because again, the highs and lows of playing that way, but also the stress it puts on you physically to play that way. There's just more moving parts. Um, There's a sort of bigger burden physically uh, when you play that way. And and I'm making it sound like he's wild off the map, like this extreme unstructured. And I don't think that at all. I, I think they have added some nice elements. It's just he's not... And again, if you were to turn him into this, you'd lose a lot of the what makes John special. And so that's sort of the that's the balance that you would have to find if you acquired him. And it's a balance that, like, I think they've actually, I think there's a good chance they've they've found a good balance there. But some of the other things going on around him have just made it very hard to sustain it. I don't think it's a coincidence that the numbers fell off after they started, you know, stripping that team apart. It's so weird though, because. I, I believe I haven't checked it recently, but I, I believe Anthony Stolarz's numbers remained relatively decent. Like they certainly didn't plummet to the capacity that Gibson's did. So like for every argument you can make to kind of excuse his performance, there's a nagging thing of like, and and we get into this with skaters all the time. How often do we say like the greats once they like lose a step physically, they can still hit it on a given night, but doing it over an 82 game season becomes more challenging to keep up that level of high level of play that you've become accustomed to. And maybe that's what we're seeing as well. Now for a 29 year old, it's weird that it's already happening. We know that goalies age differently, especially than skaters. So I wouldn't expect this uh, type of depreciation in performance, but it's tough to, it's tough to defend after three straight seasons. I think we all want to see him in a better environment with a better chance to win and see what would happen. And yet because of all the things we great test case. Yeah. But because of all the things we just said, yeah. Um, it's a, it's going to be a risk and, and, and like, listen, like 
again, somebody's going to come knocking on the door here and take away my goalie union card. But what have I, like I've always kind of said, the one thing I, I would avoid if I was running a team is term. Yeah. Um, because things change. Matt Murray's a perfect example. You can win two cups, the game changes, and your style no longer works. So you mm-hmm. have to change. Um, but, you know, like, so that's one thing I would avoid. But the, the other part is, like, I don't know if some of the you know, some of these guys that we've had in this stratosphere, like, is it worth the risk? Like, is is it would you would you make that gamble? As much as I think there's a ton in his game, you know, we're seeing games played come down. Yeah, all it like. I think Vasilevsky, obviously Bob, like we're not going to see those kind of contracts anymore because right. outside of Vasi, who can play that much? Like. The argument that the goalie should be the highest paid, I mean, I think we're way past that. But, like, I think we're going to see salaries come down even on number one guys. Yeah. Because we've seen the threshold, 70, 65, 60. Yeah. And then it was 55 to 60. And now I'm hearing teams start to talk about 50 to 55 as an ideal target for games played for a number one guy. The two of the guys that played the most last year, UC Saros and Thatcher Demko. Now, yeah. Connor Hellebuck, again, this is credit to him and Vasilevsky. They can play a lot and stay healthy. Yeah. Saros and Demko. They both got hurt. Neither one of them made it to the end of the season. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think we've already seen that reflected in in, in compensation, right? You mentioned the term. Yeah, I, I think, think money's going to come down for even goalies. Even dollars. Like, it's, it's so interesting to compare it to what we've seen with skaters, especially forwards, where teams are paying the high end and then they're stripping out that middle class and, and they're basically going ELCs or expensive contracts, right? And for, for goalies, I think that uncertainty is reflected in 38 goalies, I believe, are between $2.75 million cap hit and like six. Yeah. And so that middle, it, it, there really only is a middle class for goalies because you usually just pay them for a couple of years at like $4 million and hope it works out. And we saw that even the two biggest names in this year's class, Kemper and, and, and Campbell as, as UFAs, both go what five and five point one two five or something like that per. Yeah. So you know they got the next they got test. The, they got our the next test term. case is going to be Igor. Like Igor, right. that deal looks like a bargain right now. Yes. Um, you know he's making that case, and I think he will continue to make that case. You can make the argument now, best goalie in the NHL. And again, Vasilevsky gets the title just because he's done it for so long, and consistency matters. Yeah. Um, but Igor Sorokin. Uh, you're going to see, like, they could be our next test case in terms of is a team willing to invest heavily in a goaltender who, because that list is short, guys that can dominate. Like that Demko deal, five years at five, looks like, uh, you know, if he can stay healthy, that's that's going to be a hell of a deal. Shesterkin's three at 5.6. Like, yep. those are going to be the next ones. Like, is a team, those are the few guys that can be that big a difference maker. Do you pay them? you know, on a Vasilevsky type scale? I, I think the answer is going to be no, mm. um, but they're the next test cases to me. All right. I, uh, we haven't even gotten into the free agents, man. I don't think we're going to get to them. I think we've, we're all, we're an <laughs> hour in and we haven't talked Matt Murray, man. Like my phone's been ringing off the hook about Matt Murray for the last couple of weeks or the last couple of days. I should well, say. Well, I, I don't think there's been a shortage of Matt Murray coverage over the past couple of days. I don't I, think most of it has been very educated. Well, I'll be honest with you. Well, yes. You could apply that to a lot of hockey topics, but um, I don't know. You want to talk like I'll give you five minutes here. Matt Murray, Jack Campbell. What's the most interesting component of all that to you? Like, I, I do find it interesting. Again, we talk about the stats. Uh, like I like Jack Campbell. There are elements of his game that improved in Toronto that I really liked. We all know about the story, the backstory. Like it's a good story. He's a great person. Teammates play hard for him. At the end of the day, um, his numbers over the past two seasons grayed out. In, 
in my numbers from ClearSight, when we look at, say, adjusted save percentage, yeah. in the 30s. Right. High 30s, but in the 30s. And as murky as that middle is, and like you said, all goalies sort of make that range, five times five for a guy in the 30s makes me nervous. Um, that's, that's like, there are other things he deserves credit for. Toronto's obviously a very tough market. I thought yeah. he handled it very well. Yeah. Toronto, we, and this is another one that doesn't come out in the stats, like they're not always an easy team to play behind because they will generate a ton. If they don't finish, they, they, they give, in, give up some good looks the other way. But on the whole, they should be a good goalie environment defensively. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's tough when you don't see a shot for five minutes to then face a two-on-one, and there's a little bit of that there. And he handled that well. But at the end of the day, the numbers don't lie. He grades out in the 30s. Are you going five times five for a guy in the 30s? That's the question I have. Well, I'm fascinated to see how it works out. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I, I, I'm on the record. I would have just done a James Reimer, Stuart Skinner tandem for like $3.5 million next season. And if that doesn't work out, then you readjust next offseason. But like I, I get it. I, I, I would have been a lot more worried about this if this was still a Dave Tippett team. Because right. for all the reputations of him being a defensive coach, the yeah, numbers they improved never, quite significantly. Yeah, never bore it out. I think he's got a better chance in Edmonton under Jay Woodcroft than he would have before that coaching change. And so maybe that gives him a chance because they were better. They seemed to buy into that. On the flip side, Matt Murray, everybody's losing their mind. And I get it. I thought it was going to be 50% retained, and it's a lot easier pill to swallow at 50% yep. retained because the comparisons are, well, we're paying him 4.69, and he could have had Darcy for 5.1. Right. And I just made my case on on Jack why I don't think I would have gone 5 times 5 there. Yeah. But in Darcy's case, because of the things we talked about at the top, I would have been that, that would have been my first choice. But in terms of plan B, what do you avoid by getting Matt Murray? You avoid the term I talked about, like you're two instead of five. Yeah. Like you're not lucking yourself into a mistake. And for all the talk about, yes, they know him and they know his history and goalie whisper, you know, like John Elkin knows him really well. And that counts the confidence of Matt Murray already started to change his game. And Ottawa's had a nice off season. I don't want to slag him too hard. But that whole scenario and how it played out there, like I've hammered them in the past for this. Yeah. It was brutal. Right. Matt Murray's, the way he won two cups, locked in, like, and this is what I don't understand, like, how nobody else saw this. Well, not nobody else, because other people did. Like, the game has become way too lateral, way too dynamic to be in your save execution stance as soon as the puck comes over center ice of the blue line. Mm. And that's how Matt played. Right. Locked in low and wide. As soon as you lock in low and wide in a save execution stance, you lose your ability to move. And Matt played a lot of the game like that. Didn't have a narrow upright stance. During the pandemic year when the season was postponed, he initiated that change on his own, starting with a trainer we work with in Kelowna to sort of change his ability to hold a narrower stance and hold that posture and move into pucks better and beat these plays. When Ottawa acquired him, it was a one-year project. That was understood. I know it was understood from a goalie coaching perspective, I believe it was understood from a general manager perspective. The rest of the coaching staff maybe weren't willing to have that patience. Matt Murray at the three-quarter point of that season was injured for a month, yeah. right? Missed a month. Upper body injury. Um, kind of was disparaged a little bit. That was the one that came as a result of him pulling himself from that start. Remember Joey yep. Decord's first start, Toronto right. and all that stuff. Um, but my understanding is that was actually a nerve injury created by treatment by their people for a neck injury. So like throw them under the bus, 
behind the scenes publicly, or not behind the scenes, but not publicly, behind the scenes into the media, like question his decision to pull himself, despite the fact he couldn't lift his glove arm or close his glove. But it gives him a month to skate. Gives him a month to work with the goalie coach, who, by the way, they fired three quarters of the way into that month, to skate, keep his all the changes that he's been trying to make, make them more innate, make them more instinctual. What happened when when he came back after that month? He was really good. Yeah. And people were like, ooh, he started to figure it out. The problem was then he got hurt. I remember him coming through Vancouver. I'm like, oh, you could see the changes. You can see it with a trained eye what's starting to happen here. It's not like he forgot how to play goal, all the intangibles that go into it. He just played a style that no longer worked. And he went out and tried to change that style. You finally see signs it's coming along. And then you start the next season by dumping them to the minors. You know, and again, he, he, tiny sample size, and some of this is injuries, and there's a very real injury risk. And that, to me, is the bigger risk of Toronto's moves than the actual game. I think his game is coming along. His adjusted save percentage last year was better than Jack Campbell's yes. by a significant margin. Yeah. It was better than Cam Talbot's by a significant margin. So amidst all this discussion about how Ottawa's improved, and like I just think that was a relationship that got broken, and maybe he deserves some blame for this. Maybe he should have played through a few more things. I don't know where the blame falls, but it was not going to work there. I don't think they handled it very well, frankly. And But that doesn't mean there's still not a goalie there. And as long as they can get him healthy, I think Curtis Sanford, there are some things that need to change in his post play. I think you'll see that happen with Curtis Sanford. But I think the biggest changes in Matt Murray's game were already initiated. But they were never – you talk to any goalie, any goalie coach, they were never going to be overnight changes. They were significant, structural, foundational, fundamental changes in how he held his body and his stance, and all movement is fueled from that. That is not a snap change that's going to take time and i don't think it's a coincidence that it finally started to take root when he was off for a month because those types of changes are hardest to make when the bullets are flying for real in a season it's like a golfer on the back nine on sunday making swing changes sets up for a fade hits his traditional draw the double cross pressure comes and you go back to what you know so uh, I still think there's a goalie there. I've been pretty vocal about this. Uh. I'm going to eat a lot of crap if he sucks in Toronto, <laughs> but I'm willing to do it because when I look at the tape, when I look at the film, when I understand some of the background that went into it, I don't think this is, outside of injury, I don't think this is as big a risk as most people have painted it out for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I understand their win now. I still would have chosen Kemper first, yeah. but I don't think this is uh, quite that. Given the choices out there, I don't think this is ba as bad a choice as many people are ca casting it as. I got more questions about Samsonov, to be honest well, with you, than I do Yeah, I mean, Matt. I think it's pure, like, the opportunity cost of the $4.7 is is a real risk because yep. the, like, there's a, a cap-strapped team that has minimal opportunities to improve their roster, and right. choosing, choosing this like, as, like, your... Back to bullet. the James Reimer example, yeah. right? Like James Reimer's consistently been around the level that Matt Murray had last season. So it is that less risky and less money. Less money, absolutely. So I would go with you on that. But I mean, in terms of some like versus the Jack Campbell, which is how a lot of this is phrased, we could have just kept kept Jack for five. Yeah, I don't think this trade off is quite as dramatic as a lot of people are suggesting. Well, it's strange because on the one hand. The commitment is low from the perspective of I believe if it doesn't work out, they can buy him out next summer and it's like a 700K cap hit or something. So it's like, it really is like a one year rental in that regard. Yeah. It really comes down to Matt, too. Like, now, there are some changes that need to happen. He's got to engage on this. Now, if it doesn't work, I'd argue 
they will not have the benefit of seeing out whoever that next goalie is going to be. Like, yeah, it's, he's it's, putting job on the line is what I've heard a, a lot for Kyle Dubas. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that, that's risky of that element, but I, I think you can underestimate just how much that extended stretch of goaltending that you referenced. I believe it was from like December on, they had like an 880 save percentage as a team, the Leafs did. And especially like the, the whiplash of starting the year the way Jack Campbell did, where he was like a 940 Vesna candidate. 100%. First third of the season, and a lot of people are like, oh, it's, it's team environment. Relative to team environment, he outperformed it at such a significant level for the first third that I would have had him as a Vesna candidate. But, and that's the other risk. Both years, he ended up being around 30th, 31st, 32nd in adjusted save percentage, each of the past two seasons. Right. But one year, it was steady the whole way. Yeah. And then last year, it was these two wild extremes. And when I broke down film, like that six-week, seven-week stretch we talked about, statistically, he was the worst goalie in the NHL. And I went to look at the film, and I'm like, He's, I didn't see like anything glaring. Right. He wasn't. His game didn't change, which should be a good thing. But he was just getting beat on open looks. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's it tough. Almost no, smells like fix. Yeah. confidence. What are you fixing here? If it's just confidence, if it's all between the ears. Wow. And again, just the nature of those past two seasons, I, I see risk there. I yeah. hope that he has a ton of success and wins the Stanley Cup in Edmonton. Because you, like, you have to cheer for a Jack Campbell. But I'm, this is the PDO cast. i got to look at the numbers, yeah. and that's what the numbers tell me. Well, I think the vibes in, in Edmonton of going from, if you're a defenseman there, going from Mike Smith yelling at you after every mistake, even when it's his fault, to the, like, the nicest guy in the league, oh. uh, the vibes are going to be immaculate in Edmonton in that regard. So I, I think that'll certainly help. Well, I tell you, though, those defensemen now have to come back and get the puck themselves. That's don't, a, get, don't get me started on goalies playing the puck. This could be a, a whole other show. Um, I'm yeah. probably going to lose that one too, so I won't. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see. I, I think it's always satisfying because to bring us full circle, we started the show talking about environment and fit and how, you know, two goalies who um, might otherwise be comparable from a true talent level in a vacuum might fare wildly differently in two different circumstances. And so seeing goalies switch teams like this provides you with more data points in terms of seeing how that fit plays with, with certain strengths and weaknesses. So I'm curious to see it. I, I think we could probably do another full show just on. Oh yeah. Really like Murray and Campbell. All, uh, yeah. And, and all, and all the other moves on free agency. Let me leave you with one. Cause I know we got to go. Okay. I get to make a prediction at the end. Yeah. And again, like I'm already going to get absolutely hammered if Matt Murray fails in Toronto and I'm willing to, cause I, I really do believe when I look at the numbers and understand the history, I, I think that's where I test in numbers. That's what you're looking for. Like the sort of the process of developing a goaltender and some of the changes required. Uh, as long as Matt embraces some changes that are further required. And I know Curtis Sanford is capable of delivering. I do believe he's going to be just fine. Okay. And it's a good environment, but the guy I think we could look back at by the end of next season and say, that was the signing of this summer, especially cause he got term at a low dollar figure is Charlie Lindgren. So I will leave you with that. I think that Charlie Lindgren, I watched him in, in Montreal. He made significant structural changes after going from Montreal, very similar to Matt Murray. The yep. way he played rush chances, especially the way he didn't, the way he got, he got wide and didn't narrow his feet. And this is becoming a, an increasingly common theme in terms of how goalies move and how they're able to sort of mitigate this fast evolving, fast paced offensive environment. Charlie learned some things in St. Louis that he hadn't learned in Montreal. I've had this conversation with him midway through the season. 
I'm not saying he, I think he ran a 958 in five games with the Blues, but it was also he had those five games also. I think the expected was like 906, which is really high by by clear sight numbers. Um, I just think based on conversations, based on film work, based on the history and a pedigree that even though he was undrafted, I think there's a high pedigree there. Like I think Charlie Lindgren in Washington is ready to pop. Like I think you will see him have a very successful season. I was shocked to see them let both guys go. Cam- Lindgren and, and who so you mean? You talking about the Blues? No, no, I was uh Lindgren went to Washington. Yep, yep, right. Yep. I was I was shocked to see Oh, Washington like Washington go, uh, let Banachek both guys go. Yeah. I was not. I thought they'd keep one. Yeah. And, and I thought they'd bring they in were Darcy. Pretty, they were pretty fed up with I think both of them. <laughs> and but seeing how they upgrade it. Like, yeah, like I think, right. I, like, I, I mean, again, this is another one, you know, cause Hey, it's easy for me to make predictions. Yeah, I don't yeah. have to, I'm not a GM. I don't have to put my, you know, my t- franchise on the line, but it's a low risk at a million. You can dump them to the, just over a million dollars. You can go to the miners if it doesn't work out, but he would be my dark horse for next year. A guy we could be talking about as having had a really good season. I like that tandem. Well, here, right now. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hold you to this. We are going to reconvene about a month into next season. And we're going to have a month. Oh, I need more games. than a month. Sometimes it takes oh, more than a month oh, for them to get what comfortable. A, what a cop-out. What yeah. a cop-out. Well, it's like the trade deadline, right? You need 15 True. to 20 games. Okay. And with Darcy I, I, there, I don't think that Charlie's getting that early. But I think, I honestly, by the end of the season, I said, I think he will. you will look back at that as one of the top signings of this okay, summer. Okay, well, I won't give you by the full season. But at some point next season, we'll reconvene. We're going to talk about all this stuff. We're going to revisit everything we discussed today. Because I think, I mean, with the amount of player movement, there's going to be a lot to... Uh, to revisit so 100 percent. i'm in just make sure we block off enough time because you, you yeah, and me, we need a three-hour three talk show. yeah three yeah um okay well i think we got to it got to enough here um i'll let you plug some stuff you talked about ingle um kind of what have you been working on and uh where can people check out all that because i know that every time i have you on the uh the amount of, of feedback of people being like wow I, I just i learned so much and i could listen to that guy talk about goaltending all day is is through the roof so well, I, I got to plug uh, NHL.com. Um, Sean Rourke was my original editor there, and they've expanded the editing staff, and they're all great people. But Sean was the guy that gave me a chance to write a goalie column. Uh, the last couple of years, because access has been limited, we've done it every couple of weeks, but it's called Unmasked. And I try and it's not just, it's not this type of geeky stuff. We don't get into all the numbers, but right. it's the fun stuff. Like, did you know that when a goalie takes a puck off the mask, if the, if the spin is, if a heavy shot has lots of spin, that's how we measure heavy shots. Right. That spin will actually leave rubber behind. And it smells like you're in like a, your buddy's like 75 Camaro during doing burnouts in the parking lot at high school. Like it, you literally smell burning rubber. So we get into those types of fun stories at NHL.com. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity they've given me to write there but the, the real stuff uh for goalies if you're a goalie uh, that's also free at nhl.com so if you're a non-goalie you'll find search unmasked you'll find lots of cool stuff uh goalie stuff in goalmag.com uh if you're not a goalie it's not for you if you're a goalie there is like i can say this there is no other place in the world where you can be taken on the ice with Carey Price working with kids and have him share tips on stick position, post play, movement patterns. Um, Ian Clark, one of the great goaltending coaches in the league, walking us through videos of Thatcher Demko's movement. Goalies every week sharing video breakdowns of their reads on saves. Like there is no better resource to get better as a goalie. We got a nutrition column that just started with Jamie Phillips, who's working on his PhD in, in um, sort of sports science exercise uh, physiology. 
I probably just got that wrong in terms of what the actual PhD is. Sorry, Jamie, but like we bring the experts to you. It's for 50 bucks Canadian a year, which is like $2 American a year. Um, you get access to the best goalie coaches and the best goalies in the world, sharing things that nobody else shares. So if you're a goalie, we will make you a better goalie. I love it. Well, Kevin, this was a blast. I'm going to quickly plug a few things before I get out of here, just so I don't have to record a separate outro. Please rate and review the show wherever you listen. Uh, Subscribe to EP Ringside for access to written work. I'm dropping a, a big pro- playoff project next week. We're going to be back next week with, I think, one or two more shows before we uh, sign off for the summer. And, and uh, I'm not going away to the cottage like a lot of hockey writers, but I... Uh, we don't I'm need it. Take... We're in Vancouver, yeah, Dimitri. Yeah. We don't need it. These guys got to escape the city. It's true. Our city we is, got it a, all right is here. a cottage. That's why, that's why you never leave the West Coast once you've been out here. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Kevin, thank you for taking the time to come chat. My pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your offseason, and we'll, uh, we'll check in next year. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.